The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 1, 22-25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Our text this morning is pretty simple. It's pretty easy to understand. A lot of times I get up here and I've got a really difficult job to explain the text, kind of contextualize it for you to understand what was going on in the original listeners and now how to apply it to us today. I really don't have that difficult of a job doing that for us this morning. It's actually pretty simple. Um, But sometimes the simplest things are the most difficult thing to do in practice. And sometimes the most simple things are the things that we just overlook and we take for granted. And, um, and so I really need the Holy Spirit to help me share this with you this morning. And um, I'm not too confident in what I've got written down. I'm just going to let you know that right now. I've changed it three times. Uh, I was up late last night. I was up this early this morning. Um, I might, you know, just scrap it completely. I haven't decided yet. I should probably figure that out real soon. <laughs> um. And it's not because I don't understand the text. Um, it's because it's so, it can be so familiar to us that we dismiss it. It's something that, as Americans, we've grown up hearing so many times. And so it can so easily go in one ear and out the other. And, um, and so I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help me um, say this this morning. Shepherd us. Um, Can I say this? Many times churches are not known for their love for one another. Many times churches are not known for their love, period. I've worked at churches. I was a young man and I started an outreach ministry and I started a bus ministry and I was bringing in poor and impoverished people into the church. And I got set down by the senior pastor and told, Justin, we have executives from Deer coming here and you're bringing poor people to, that, who smell and sitting them right next to these CEOs. What do you want me to tell these people? And I said, get saved. And then I got fired. So that wasn't the right thing to say, right? Like, I don't care what you tell them. Tell them the gospel. And so there's this sense that, listen, I'm going to tell you this. There's a sense that, some, I'm going to say this right here. Oh, man. Some of you are not Christians. And you're in this room. You come to church and you have maybe your whole life, but you're not Christian. And there's a temptation for me to try to tell you what you want to hear and make you feel good about yourself and maybe encourage you and then send you out. But I think that would be to the damnation of your soul, and I'm not going to do that. And, I'm, and this, is, this is where I'm going this morning. The church is a place that you have to be born again to be a part of. And if you're not born again, you're not going to stick around. 
you're not going to be a part of it because it takes new life inside of you to live this out. And the church is not a place for nice, moral people to be nice and moral to one another. It's not the church. The church is a completely radical organism, organization, something that takes the supernatural power of God to come down, get inside a person, transform them from the inside out, send them out to live in this new radical way that everyone else in society says, that's impossible, that's weird, that doesn't make sense, I'll never do that. That's the church. It's not a bunch of people that put nice clothes on, come together, sing some nice songs, Hopefully our kids are getting something over there where they're going to be more behaved when they go home. Right? And we sing some songs, we feel better about ourselves, and then we go home and we watch our news and we point our finger at everybody else who's screwing our country up. It's not the church. And Peter is writing to people who have been disowned from their family because they became a Christian. They were in a culture that was antagonistic to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They realized that the gospel, it didn't smell sweet. It didn't smell good to the culture. And when they converted, they were living radically different lives and we were being persecuted for it, ostracized, made fun of. They weren't sleeping around anymore. Their values got flipped upside down. It's interesting. One commentator says this. The Greco-Roman society were liberal with their bodies, okay? They would sleep around. They, they would go to the temple with, and have sex with prostitutes in, in form of worship. They would be married and then have many lovers on the side. They're very liberal with their bodies. They give it freely, but they were very tight with their money. They, they, they held on to that. They held on to their money. They held on to their honor. They held on to their reputation, and when, when these people were saved, when they were born again, those values got flipped upside down. One um, early church writer was commenting on it. He said this, the Christians now are liberal in everything. They give their food. They give their money. Except their bodies. They, they, don't sh- they share everything with one another except for their wives, except for their husbands. The values got flipped upside down where now they're conservative. They're conserving their bodies for, their mar- for the marriage, for their spouse, but they're now liberal with all their resources and they're also liberal with their reputations. They're willing to be mocked and made fun of and cursed. Fascinating, this reversal of values. And I think this morning, as we come to this text, there's a sense where our values that we hold by being born again, some of they're going to be upside down to the values of our culture. They're not going to make sense in our culture. And you will be, you will feel like an outsider. All right, 1010. Let me pray. We're getting to this thing. Father, I need your help this morning. I need your help. I ask for your help. I ask that you would do what you said you would do, and that's build your church. And I'll do what you call me to do, and that's preach your gospel and preach your word. Think through my mind. Speak through my vocal cords. Help your people hear what you would have them say. Hear what you would be speaking to them. Hear what you're saying to them. Let them hear your words and not mine.
I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just read the scripture this morning because I'm, I'm scrapping half of my sermon. Uh, first, here it is. We're in 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since... You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He says this, he quotes Isaiah and says, all flesh is like grass and it's glory like the flower of grass. We haven't had much rain lately. Uh, that's always good. Honestly, not for the farmers, sorry, but it's good for those of us who don't like mowing our lawn, Right? It gets a little weird at my house because my kids have this little play pool and all the grass around the play pool was like a foot and a half tall, right? But everything else was dark. And Isaiah is saying here that our flesh, the glory of our flesh is like the glory of grass. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow, right? It looks beautiful. We're fascinated with it. That's why we love movie stars and celebrities and the latest fashion. We're so fascinated by it. And yet it's here today and it's gone tomorrow, guaranteed Keeps going. He says, the grass withers, the flowers fall. But look, there's something that's eternal. There's something that goes on forever. And that is the word of the Lord. And he clarifies what is the word of the Lord. What is the word of the Lord? He says, this is the word, is the good news that was preached to you. The gospel. The gospel is eternal. The gospel is good news that if you believe it, goes on into eternity, goes on forever. Unlike our flesh, unlike everything we want in our flesh that ends here, the gospel goes into eternity and it gives us eternal happiness, eternal, eternal joy. Now, verse 22, he starts like this. And I'm just going to say this. This is, how do I say this? This is, this whole text, uh, I could say it's a gospel sandwich, but it's more than that. It's more like gospel jambalaya, okay? It's got a whole bunch of gospel thrown into the pot and there's one big imperative. And I think you, we all see the big imperative. I hope we all see the big imperative. It's right here. Well, let me just read it. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now listen, if that came into you and you're like, yeah, okay. Then you don't understand what that means. Part of my problem with preaching this this morning is that right there scares the crap out of me. Here's the one thing that you're called to do. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Speaking to his, the Christians, speaking to the brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's the one thing you're going to be judged on. Here's the one thing that should happen after you're born again. Your love for one another should be earnest. Now, I'm going to get here. This command is so upside down, it's so difficult that it cannot be done. And I'm going to tell you this, every, nearly every other religion, not every other religion, but nearly every other religion, you might say, well, that doesn't sound any different. Like, love people. What's so revolutionary about that? Well, one, have you tried it? <laughs> really? Have you tried it? 
There's a reason you have a six-foot-tall fence in your yard. There's a reason you lock your doors. There's a reason you pull up to your house and you push a button and a huge door opens and you drive inside and then you push a button and you close the door. There's a reason you block yourself off from your neighbors, right? And you do this even if you live in the best neighborhood in town, right? You do this even in the neighborhoods where you don't see drug dealers on the corner and people walk in the street. You do this there. Why? Loving other people is hard. People hurt us. People sin against us. There's bad people out there. Maybe we even question our own motives. And we look inside and we go, man, I don't think I'm that good of a person. Loving people is hard. And Peter says this, and he says it three or four times in this letter, love one another earnestly. Love one another as brothers and sisters. And so every religion might say that to us, you should love one another. Every Facebook post, love one another. Hey, the answer to everything is wrong with our world. Love one another. Here's the problem. How do you do that? How, I'm not that loving of a person. Right? I, I'm, I, I'll tell you one person I love. That's the me. Right? So I can do that. But how do I love another person? Every other religion says, well, you love another person. You need to do that if you want to reach nirvana, you want to reach heaven. You have to do that. And it applies pressure to the will. And so then I pull myself up and I say, love that person. I'm going to love that person. Oh, that works well right? I'm going to grip my teeth and love you. (laughs) But here's what Peter says. Though we do have to be told to do that, the gospel of Jesus Christ does something so revolutionary that it gets inside of a human being and transforms them in such a way From the level of DNA, spiritual DNA, it gets inside of us and transforms us and turns us into people who are actually capable of loving other people. Loving our Christian brothers, loving our neighbors, loving our enemies. And so the, all the world religions, may, or many of the world religions and all of our political leaders, and they all say we love one another and yet they're powerless to make it happen. The gospel is the power of God that saves us and turns us in to lovers of God and lovers of people. And so that's why I say this morning, listen, I think the church should be set up in such a way that when we read it from the New Testament, that if you can't love people, you feel like the odd man out. You feel like an alien in the church because this isn't something we can do in our own strength. We have to be born again. We should be coming up to the into the reality of maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I haven't been born again. And many of us are so convinced that we have because we prayed a prayer one time. When the reality is, if you want to know if you're a Christian, if you want to know the test, look to see how well you're loving your brother and sister in Christ. Let me get into this. But, That is so revolutionary. That is so controversial. That is so upside down from anything we think. And that all of us right now are probably thinking, well, how much do I have to love people to be a Christian? 
right? Then Peter has to do the gospel jambalaya, right? He has to say, here's the one thing I want you to do. Love your brothers, okay? But this is what Jesus has done for you. You have been born again. You, and, and we're about to get into all the gospel indicatives, what God has done to make this possible. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now, what does this mean? Having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth. Peter's been talking about it all through the first 20 verses, 21 verses. Listen, when you, this, this is his shorthand version of saying, when you believed the gospel, when you responded to the gospel and came into the church, when you repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, this is what happened. Here's what happened. Do you know what happened? God purified your souls. When you put your faith in Christ, God purified your souls. Now, this is good news for us. We all know that we are impure people. Maybe we don't all know that, but we are impure people with sinful hearts. Psalm, in Psalm 51.10, David prays to God. David, who was called a man after God's own heart, prays this. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. See, David knew that his heart was impure and he needed God to make it clean again. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God promised that one day he would do this. He says, I quote, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And what Peter is saying here is that when a person puts their faith in Jesus and turns from their sin, they are once and forever purified. Their mind, heart, and wills, their souls, the immaterial part of a person that determines everything else that we do and everything else that we choose, our soul is made right with God. We are purified. But this is the hardest part for us to understand. And many of us hear that and go, "Woo! I'm out of here. I'm purified. Now I can go live my life however I want. Though we are positionally made right with God and we stand in Christ, one with Him through faith, we are eternally pure before Him because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Our hearts, listen, our hearts still remain impure. They're still polluted. We still sin. We're still selfish. Though we have a new heart, and now this new heart has new desires for Jesus, Sin still remains and drags us back into our old, foolish, futile ways. That's why Peter goes on here and he says this, you have been purified for something. You haven't been purified so that you can sit around and have devotions between you and Jesus. Being born again isn't just about going to heaven when you die. Please hear me. I believed, check. Now what? I'm going to heaven, got that off my list. Now I just live my life, do what I want to do. Peter says, you have been purified. Look at the text. 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, look at this, for a sincere brotherly love. I want you to think about that. Why were you born again? So I could go to heaven. Well, that's not what Peter says. Peter does talk about all of our riches and our inheritance in Christ before that. But what does he say right here? You have been purified for what? You have been born again. You have been purified for sincere brotherly love. Now, this is not Peter creating his own theology. He's echoing the words of Jesus. And Jesus said this in John 13, 31. Listen, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Jesus says this, how do you know if you're a disciple? How will the world know that you are a disciple? How? By your love for your Christian brothers and sisters. Your love for them will be so evident that everyone will realize that you are a follower of Jesus. Christianity, this is a cheesy way to say it. I hate saying it like this, but it's cheesy. That's what I got. Christianity is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. You can't do it on your own. Christianity is not a gathering of loosely tied individuals who come together and sing the same songs on Sunday morning and drink from the same coffee pot. The church is not a place for you to become the, you know, to find your true self, to to self-actualize and find a way to make your life easier, more prosperous, more successful. When we are born again, and listen, I I get excited about this, and I get passionate about this, because in a sense, if you, I don't know if you saw these videos from like Hurricane Irma and there are these, everybody was supposed to be off the streets, but of course the reporters are out there, right? And they're like standing like this, leaning into the wind, right? This is what I feel like as a preacher of the gospel who's going to preach the Bible. I feel like I'm standing in a headwind and I'm just leaning into it and all the force of all the culture and all of our understanding is pushing against me and all of us have grown up with this cultural Christianity, this Americanized Christianity that's about me and my comfort and my family. And so I get really passionate about pushing against that, but I feel a lot of force being pushed back. Right? I feel a lot of pushback against it. And so I'm, I'm doing my best to put my head down and lean into this, knowing that many of us, we grew up with an unchristian version of Christianity. When we are born again, we are born again in a new family. That's what the whole analogy is about. We have a new father and we have a new family and now we have a new way of life. Peter says that we are born again for. Circle the word. It tells you what everything else is about before it. Born again for a sincere brotherly love. We don't just get a new father. We get new brothers and sisters whom we must love sincerely and earnestly. Now listen, Nabil Quraysh, if you know who he is, he was a Muslim. Uh, He was a very passionate, very devout Muslim. 
Um, and in med school, after a two and a half year relationship with another Christian, uh, d- discipleship relationship, apologetic, they were arguing back and forth. He was converted. He was born again. He put his faith in the risen Jesus Christ. And listen, when he got born again, he got adopted into a new Christian family. And guess what his, his family did? They disowned him. They disowned him. And they, still, they didn't completely disown him. They were saddened. They were, I mean, they didn't break off all relationships with him. But they knew where his new allegiance lie. And his father cried. His mother cried. They wept. Now, he just passed away yesterday. He died of, state, he died of cancer. Uh, 34. It was very sad. But listen. His family realized he's, he's in a new family now. Our family is secondary. We get it when people come from Islam into Christianity. But, but the same reality is true as when you come from American Christianity into real Christianity. You are in a new family now. You have new values now. You have new brothers and sisters now. You have a new father now. You have a new way of life now. And there should be this awkwardness, this reality that, that you're living in a different family and your priorities are to a different father now. And your priorities are to a different brother and sister now. Jesus was clear about that when he said, you got to hate your brother and you got to hate your mother, right? That's what he said. That's his words. And the interpretation is your love for God and your love for your Christian brothers and sisters should trump your love for your natural relations, your DNA relation. Your church family is more important, more primary. Your spiritual family is more primary to your identity than your natural family. Paul says we should purify our souls by being born again and we should love our Christian brothers and sisters sincerely and earnestly. Now, what are those two words? Both of those words are really important. Sincerely means loving without hypocrisy. Christians are so confused by this. Here's the statement that we all say. How do I love the sin or love the sinner and hate the sin? I know what I'll do. I'll just act like the sin isn't really there. And I, cause I don't want to make it awkward and I'll just, you know, be, be nice to this person and be kind to this person. That's not loving sincerely. You know who that's loving? That's loving yourself and you love comfort and you don't want to make this uncomfortable. That's not how Jesus loved people. One of the most fascinating uh, conversations in all of the Bible is when Jesus meets this young man, the Bible calls the rich young ruler. And the conversation starts like this. Listen, Jesus looked at him and loved him. I studied the scriptures this week. I, I'm trying to rack my brain. I went through a bunch of, went through the scriptures, did a search and all this kind of stuff. How many times did it say that Jesus loved this one person? Right? And this is this, and then with Mary and Martha, situation with Lazarus. Now listen, I want you to think about this. Sincere love is loving in line with the truth. Sincere love puts God before us. The reality of him and his word and, 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 and the truth before us. God before us. This is how Jesus did it. Looking at the rich young ruler, it says he loved him. And the rich ruler, hey, what do I got to do to be saved? 
And Jesus didn't go, oh, what you got to do is you just got to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that I'm the son of God. Jesus says, you've done a lot of good things. Here's the one thing you got to do. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the rich young ruler looked at Jesus and walked away sad. Now here, I have a functional belief that's not biblical, and here's my functional sinful belief. If I say the right thing in the right way, I'll get the right response from you. That's my functional belief. If I say the right thing in the right way, I'll get the right response for you. The only problem is that, the only problem with that is this conversation with Jesus. He said the right thing in the right way. He's perfectly right, always right, handles it right. He's loving this person. And the most loving thing to say to this person is sell everything you own and give it to the poor. And the man looks at the son of God and walks away sad. That's the most loving thing to do with a person wrapped up in money. Tell them the truth. Gandhi, at the beginning of World War II, Gandhi stood up and Gandhi said, we should love our German, the Germans, and so we should surrender to Hitler. We should surrender. So that was Gandhi's advice. We all like to quote Gandhi. I wouldn't quote him in that. The most loving thing to do to the Germans was confront them with the truth. You can't. There's the Imago Dei in human beings. You can't annihilate people based on their race. We confronted them with truth. We went to war with them over truth. That was the most loving thing we could do. Jesus says love has these sharp edges. It's a sincere love. It's honest. Listen, I love you, but I got to speak to this. You are sleeping around and that's not going to end well for you. The most loving thing I can do, your life is built on middle class Midwestern values and not the scriptures. You're not loving your brothers and sisters. You're not prioritizing God's father, God's family. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do to people is confront them in their hypocrisy. Second word, earnestly. We are commanded to love our brothers and sisters earnestly. The word in the Greek is ektenos. That means seriously, fervently, constantly. Now listen, this, is, this blew me away this week. It's the same word used when Jesus was in the garden the night that he was betrayed. The text says, Jesus prayed earnestly and his capillaries burst and he was bleeding out of his sweat glands. He was sweating drops of blood. That's the picture of earnest prayer, of earnest love. And Peter says, your love for your brothers isn't some wishy-washy, have fun together, let's have volleyball night, just get, just love each other, right? It's earnest, it's focused, it's sincere, it takes effort. Now let me ask you, when you think about love, do you think about that level of exertion? People tell me all the time, love shouldn't take this much work. Sorry, but that is ridiculous. If it takes a lot of work to throw a curveball, 
it might take a lot of work to love another human being. Possibility. Jesus shows us what love is. It's earnest. It takes a lot of work. It's self-sacrificial. I'm willing, Jesus says, to bleed for you. Earnest love. Listen. So here, here, listen. Sincere love puts God before us. Please hear me. Sincere love puts God before us. His ways... I wanted to make sure we're right with him before we're right with one another. So I'm willing to speak truth if I need to speak truth. God before us, okay? Earnest love puts you before me. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. I'm willing to lay down my effort for you. It's God before us and you before me. 1 John 3.16 says it like this. By this... We know love. Okay. I'm, I'm leaning in against the headwind of what we all think love is. Now, why do we think love is, why, why does, what, what, where do we get our definition of love from? I'm going to tell you. We got it through TV shows, mainly. We got it through the media. We got it through the books that we read, the movies that we watch. How do you change a generation's morality? You change their imaginations, what they think is good, what they think is beautiful. And you do that through art, right? And so all of us have this weepy, sappy, sentimental idea that's focused on our feelings, idea of love. And when I say the word love, that's not what I mean at all, right? And if you're a mom, please, you should know this. There is no weepy, sentimental butt wiping. I'm just so thankful. Oh, right? I got it all over me, but I'm just thankful. Oh, I feel so. No. Love is effort. Love is self-sacrifice. Love is shown by how much I'm willing to give up for another person. Not by how, what I feel towards them necessarily. 1 John 3.16. So listen, that's how we've been shaped. Media. We need to turn our eyes from this and let, let God's definition of love shape us. And we're changed in it by that, by looking at Jesus. Listen, by this we know love. Not by the books. Not, not by Shakespeare, right? Not by the movies we watch. Not by Game of Thrones. Not, by, not on any of those things. How do we know what love is? That Jesus laid down his life for us. Uh-oh. And we ought to lay down our, our lives for the brothers. Oh, what? You mean the way Jesus loved people and the way Jesus laid down his life for his disciples, that's what it means to be a Christian? I I've been drafted into that game? I'm on that team now? Absolutely. Car Commentator Karen Job says this, the love Peter has in view is neither a warm, fuzzy feeling nor friendships around a coffee pot after worship. Though love as Peter defines it may involve both, rather it refers to righteous relationships with each other that are based on God's character, which Christian behavior reflects. Um, for the past three years, <laughs> I've been reading this book called The Brothers Kar Karamazov. It's so hard to read, so difficult. 
I just read two pages. When I can't sleep, that's what I pick up. About halfway through it. And in it, Father Zosima says this. He says, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Love in real life is self-sacrificial. It bleeds. It's not sexy. Love in dreams is a whole other thing. Tim Keller said this week, if your definition of love stresses affectionate feelings more than unselfish actions, you will cripple your relationships. Now listen, this is how God, if you have been born again, this is how God commands you to relate to those sitting next to you right now. Those in your missional community. You are to love them with a self-sacrificial, sincere and earnest love that puts God before us and you before me. This is love. Lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. Lay down your time. Lay down your money. Lay down your emotional investment. Lay down your comfort. There's a letter by uh, Dionysus, the overseer of the Christian community in Alexandria in the year 260 AD. And in this letter, he's recalling what happened when a devastating plague hit the city. And this plague was terrible. It affected like 80% of the city. Thousands were killed. And one of the things that was so unique is, is when the Greco, when the Romans, when they the fir- at the first sign, this is what he says in the letter, at the first sign of the disease in their children, they would throw their children out in the street. Now we're shocked by that, but we don't understand. Like this, this is Greco-Roman culture. Okay, in the majority of the cities that they're living in, there was, for every hundred men, okay, there was 80 females. Okay, for every hundred men, there was 80 females. Now, the men are like, this is good. I've got really good odds here, right? But that doesn't happen naturally. That basically happens through natural. That basically happens through human beings killing their children. Okay, Plato, Aristotle, all the Greeks—they condoned the genocide, infanticide. They condoned it. They condoned abortion. There's one recent archaeological study that, and I can't remember the city right off the top of my head. If you want to know, I can get it to you. Um, they, they were uncovering this, the city and they found this aqueduct under the city and it, had, and it, was, it got clogged and then so they aban- the city abandoned it and the archaeologists went down and they dug and found and, and they, they were uncovering what clogged this thing and there was over a hundred children less than one year old. The Roman society said, this child is unwanted. It's a female. They'd leave it outside. They'd throw it in the sewer. They would abort it. And Christians began to say, no, 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 no. I'll take the baby. We value life. It's not an inconvenience to me. I'll take the baby. Okay? And Dionysus, as he's writing here in Alexandria, he says this, when the the Greco-Romans, when they would see 
my child's got sickness, they would throw him out. What would the, what would the Christians do? This child has the plague and the Christians would go out and wrap their arms around it. And Dionysus says, and welcome him into their family to this, at their own peril, knowing they will get the disease. The Greco-Romans would lock themselves away from their own family. It's every man for itself. And the Christians who were so controlled by the love of God that they would go and care for the sick. And Dionysus says, and many of our elders and many of our deacons communicated the disease and died because of it and they received their reward with their heavenly father. A brotherly love that puts my own flesh at stake. Now I gotta be honest with you. If your neighbor gets the plague, I know what you're doing. You're not bringing them soup. You're not bringing them cookies. You're going to build that, that fence 16 feet high. You're going to hunker down and pray, oh God, don't let it come to me. The early Christians, and how did they go? At this time right now, there's probably 15,000 Christians in the world at the time of Peter. 250 years later, there's 20 million take over the Roman Empire. How does that happen? They weren't fake Christians. They weren't comfortable, cultural Christians. They had been born again. This love had came inside them, and they said, we're living for another world. We're living for another father. We're in another family, and I can risk this life. I can risk this life because I'm promised another one that's perfect. And they laid down their lives for the sake of the brothers. This is what earnest love looks like. And here is what Peter is telling his readers and us by extension. Your church is your new family and you are to love them sincerely. Now, I'm going to skip all that stuff I had written down there. I mean, I'm just going to drop it right here. How well How well do you love? Let's just make it real practical. How well do you love this church? How well do you love the person sitting next to you? The person sitting across from you in missional community? How often do you pray? people in this room. I have, a, I have these thoughts. I think one of the saddest things in our world today, our jobs take us, we, we, we leave our homes for school, we leave our homes for jobs, we're moving around all the time. Rarely do people have deep, meaningful relationships that are more than a few years old. And this is normal? When you're saved, when you're adopted, you're in a new family. I want at my funeral, I'm praying that there are dozens of people that I've walked with for decades. 
that I've discipled and they've discipled me for decades. This is what it means to be brought into a family. We love our brothers and sisters earnestly and sincerely. Now, I'm just going to ask this. How, how is it even possible to love your brothers and sisters sincerely and earnestly if your life is set up in such a way that you rarely see them? How is it even possible? There's a lot of like rules in the Bible, like things that we're commanded to do. What if we just forgot about all of them and this is the only one? What if this is the only one that we stand before God and this is the only one that we're going to be judged by? What did, what did, how well did you love those in your missional community? When things got awkward, did you leave? When somebody said something you, didn't dis- you disagreed with, did you take off? Is that what family does? When someone got sick, did you pull away because it made you think about your mortality and you got scared? Or did you press in? The church is not meant to be, listen, what makes the church attractive? People loving one another, sacrificially. Not smoke machines and lights and attractive series about 40 hundred ways to make your sex life better now. Not 10 different ways to increase your bank account. Not even renovated buildings. Not in funny preachers. Not in awesome music. The apologetic of the gospel is meant to be a transformed community that's been born again and they live completely different than the culture. Self-sacrificial. They're liberal with all of their stuff. They give it away freely. They're not hoarding it like the rest of the culture. How, I know this is heavy, how can we obey this command to love our brothers and sisters sincerely and intensely and earnestly if we only see them one day a week? If we only see them in a missional community, if we only see them on Sunday. Listen, if you're living like that, you, you just don't understand what your salvation was for. It wasn't just to get you to heaven. It wasn't just to purify you of your sins. You were purified so that you could love other purified people and people being purified. You were purified so you could love other people, so you could affectionately love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so listen, this is what I mean. We say this, the only way to make disciples is in community and on mission. That's what we are as a church. We're saved into God's family and then we're sent on his mission to love others. Now listen, the only way to stay in community, you might come to this church because you like the preaching or you like the music or you like some people and you went to missional community they had really great food and people were nice to you and all that. That won't keep you in missional community. The only thing that will keep you in missional community, the only thing that will keep you walking with other people is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here is the gospel. Here is the brilliant news. I hope every single one of us feel like right now we're like, oh, no. 
right? There should be a sense in us where we're backed into a corner because I know you well enough and I know myself well enough that if I'm measured by how well I'm loving people, I fail, right? I completely fail the standard. But here's the reality. Keep, let's keep reading. I'm going to read it again. Having purified your soul. So we've been saved. We've been born again and our souls have been purified by For a sincere brotherly love, look, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since, 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 how can I do it? Every other religion says go love people, but there's no power. There's no motivational factor. Here's the power of the gospel. Since you have been born again. Do you see what he's doing? This is an indicative sandwich, okay? He says this. He says, you have been purified. Love one another earnestly because you have been born again, right? He's wanting us to know, don't try this at home. This is not a sermon that says, okay, here's what you all need. Go love each other, you idiots. We're like, we're gonna do it. It lasts for eight minutes. You know, you're gonna fight in the car. Listen, this is what he's saying. Since you have been born again, look, look, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living, abiding word of God. We don't think enough about what it means to be born again. Listen, you were born the first time. And you were born in what Peter calls, <laughs> sorry, Dad, imperishable seed or perishable seed, right? You were born from your father's seed. That's what Peter's talking about. And that is perishable seed. It's going to die. You're going to die. It's incapable of producing anything spiritually good. Now listen, who you are right now is a result of your father's seed your, and your mother, your, your DNA, right? That's, what it's, that's who you are. It was determined by that. Now look at what Peter is trying to tell us. When you have been born again, you have received new seed. You have literally received godness from God. The seed of God, the word of God comes inside of me and causes me to be born again. Now listen, what does perishable seed do? Here's what perishable seed looks like. We're all taught, we're, we're born into a very homogeneous family, right? Guess what? No one's, well, I'm not even going to go into that. We love, we, we're learned in that homogeneous family to love those we look like. We love those who treat us well. We love those who look like us and act like us. This is the love of a homogeneous family unit. And honestly, there's really nothing special about it. You don't really have, you shouldn't have to teach people to love your family, right? Love your kids. We just do. They're part of us. They're from our seed and we do. They're part of our DNA. It's nice, but it doesn't take the Holy Spirit. But when we're born again, we get God the Father's seed in us. Peter calls this imperishable seed. It's the word of God that that remains forever, that purifies forever. It's the eternal seed from an eternal God that creates eternal children in an eternal family, the church. Now listen, this 
is supernatural. This is something to talk about. This is something the world should look in and go, whoa, what's happening in that place? We can't recreate that. It's a power that comes into us and enables us to love people that don't like us. It's a power that enables us and encourages us and causes us to exert ourselves in great ways to love those who are not like us. This is the supernatural love of a diverse family. And it comes through getting the DNA of God, the spiritual DNA of God when we're born again. Listen, 1 John. This is how John says it again, 4-7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And look, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I want you to hear this. When you turn from your old way of life and you put your faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit comes into you, he comes into you. He brings the word of God, the good news, the gospel into your soul and it recreates you. You're not a better version of yourself. You're something totally new made from the DNA of God. And that earnest, intense, self-sacrificial love is in our new DNA. God before us, you before me, it's in my DNA. This type of love, this gospel-centered love is what we have received from God. It's the new life-producing seed that has come inside of us and recreated us and caused us to be born again. And if we have been born again, then this love is growing in us. Let me ask you this morning. See, I could say this, have you been born again? But how about this? Do you love your brother and sister with an earnest, sincere love? You look in and you say, no, I don't. Then look up to Jesus Christ, who's on the cross, loving you earnestly, sincerely. And you know what the cross says to us? Sincere. You're this bad. Nothing can fix you but my death, the death of the Son of God. It's earnest, though. He says, but I love you so much, I'm willing to go through this. I chose to go through this to love you into the kingdom. This is, this is what love looks like, sincere. You're worse than you thought possible. But earnest, I love you so much. I love you more than you could possibly imagine. Look up to the cross. Confess your sins, repent to the Father, and you will be born again. Father, I pray that you would cause some in this room to be born again. That your DNA would enter their souls and purify it and just set it on fire with a love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. For those of us who have been born again, and yet we say, oh no. I don't love like I should. 
I don't love like the Father has loved me. Father, we confess our sins this morning and we're thankful for the good news of the gospel that reminds us we're adopted, we're saved, we're born again, not because of, not because of how well we love others, but because of how well you loved us. And so we turn from that and God, we believe the gospel when we were broken, when we were enemies, when we were dead, you loved us to life, you pursued us. And so would you, with our eyes on the cross, would you empower us to love our church family the way that we're commanded to, earnestly, sincerely. And Father, would that love be appealing to those outside these four walls? Would they see our love for one another and know that we're disciples of Jesus? Would they long for that love? Would they long for that community? Would they long for that gospel that unites diverse people into one family? Father, I pray that you do this for the glory of your name, for the good of our city. As we come to take the Lord's Supper this morning, let us all pause and reflect and repent for our lack of love for our brothers and rejoice in the love that you have for us, disobedient sons and daughters, that you loved us into the family and you'll love us into eternity. We take the bread that was broken for us, we take the blood that was shed for us, and we eat it in remembrance of your gospel this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.